Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. My name is AJ Venegas. I am the pastor of life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today we are in part two of our mini series on money. We're looking at Luke 19 verses 11 through 27. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So with that, let's go deeper. Joining us to finish the uh, mini series on money is Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Thanks for having me back after last week's topic on money. Yeah, I know it's been great and it's been so uh, refreshing to d- develop this kingdom mindset about money. And so Luke 19 verses 11 through 27 is a broad text of scripture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple verses at a time and then stop and then ask a question. And so we'll start from the beginning at verse 11. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So the pattern that I've been tracing in these podcast series is that usually my first question always is about orienting our minds around what is exactly going on here. And so we are given some hints that, you know, this parable that's coming up is while they're listening to this. um, And then he was near Jerusalem. So all these little hints that something is going on here. And you mentioned in your sermon that it's best to not read this parable in a vacuum, because so many people have read this and said, like, here's a really fascinating parable, but have forgotten about the context. And so for this opening question, can you just help us set the scene here in this Luke 19 passage? What are the things that we should be taking into this? What are some of the links that our mind should be already meditating on as we approach this parable? Yeah, it seems like in the last several chapters, Jesus and his disciples have been on some sort of road trip where they're heading towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city. That's where Jesus ultimately will enter in the triumphal entry in the next uh, segment here. This is where he's ultimately at the end of that week going to be crucified and resurrected. And so he's been making his way towards Jerusalem. So he's on his journey towards his final week uh, pre-resurrection on planet Earth. And and they're just coming out of Jericho. So Jericho is a suburb of Jerusalem, kind of just to orient geographically. Imagine you're in the city of Tracy and you have to ascend the Altamont Pass to the top of the pass. The top of the pass is Jerusalem. Tracy is Jericho, right? So they're at the bottom of the hill looking up towards Jerusalem. And they just have had several conversations about money on the way. Or they talked in Jericho with Zacchaeus, who was a rich tax collector who gave up all of his wealth when his heart was transformed with the gospel. Before going into Jericho, they ran into a blind beggar who had no sight, and Jesus recovered their sight and gave them the ability to get up and work for the first time maybe in their lives. Before that, Jesus met with a rich young ruler who came with his wealth and walked away sad because Jesus said, you need to let go of that wealth if you're going to follow after me. So they've been on this journey towards Jerusalem where Jesus' earthly ministry ministry will culminate. And along the way, they've been having a lot of conversations around the kingdom of God, our worldly wealth, and and everyone is imagining when they go to Jerusalem that that's where Jesus is finally going to ascend his throne, 
right? They're very surprised when after the triumphal entry and they crown him king, he ascends the steps of the temple and instead of sits down on a throne there, he turns over the tables and casts out the money changers and says, this is a den of robbers. And so Jesus is in this tension between money, the kingdom of God. And like you just read this parable saying, one of the things he's trying to fix in their brains is that the kingdom is not going to come when they get to the top of that hill. He's going to die resurrect, ascend to a throne, sit down, rule and reign from his heavenly throne for a season and then return for his people later. And we're in that age right now, 2000 years later. And so he's reorienting their minds around what it means to live with purpose in relationship to money and the kingdom of God, knowing that Jesus will return for us someday. It's fascinating the connection between this one and the Zacchaeus story where we just read like today salvation has come to this house. And so I'm as you're approaching the ultimate pass, I guess uh, you're thinking, oh, man, this might be the kingdom is going to appear at once. And so uh, they have this kingdom mindset going in to verse 12 here. It says, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Verse 15 says, he was made king, however, and returned home. So one of the things we're seeing in the prelude of this parable is just a lot of kingdom language. You know, it's this kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Uh, this man of noble birth uh, having himself appointed as king. This king has 10 servants. Uh, there's this subjects and they send a delegation. Um, all this kingly language. And I'm imagining uh, for the first century reader or listener of this passage, you're probably thinking, oh man, there's a kingdom that I can think about and it's Rome. And, you know, one of the comparisons that the commentaries make is like uh, somebody who ruled uh, had to go to Rome to receive their kingship and then come back. So it's like this rhythm of this kingship. And uh, we're, we're already feeling it from the first century in, uh, you know, whether it's King Herod or the kings that follow him. But today, I think it's interesting that um, we don't have kingdom at the tip of our tongues. In fact, in America, we were founded on the idea that we didn't want a kingdom. We wanted to avoid any monarchy or anything like that. Um, you know, there's a famous war for that. But needless to say, we're so distant from this idea of kingdom. And yet it seems like it's a really important backdrop to this parable. And so I'm wondering, as we're about to jump into the parable here. Um, could you help us give us a mindset of what this language of the kingdom would have meant to an original listener in the first century and how we can move forward with this kingdom backdrop in mind? Yeah, this king kingdom conflict is one that is comes up a lot in Jesus' ministry. When he's crucified, the Romans crucify him and put above him Jesus, the king of the Jews, um, really as a political statement to say, hey, here is your king. Don't try to uprise against Rome, right? And the Jewish folks were saying, hey, he's not our king, right? They're like, well, I've written what I've written, right? Is that what Pilate says. Uh, and so there's this idea, there's these 
these conflicting kingdoms among the world. There's the Jewish people who are a kingdom within a kingdom. They're awaiting this Messiah who is going to create a worldwide kingdom. And so there's this view of of a Jesus-type character who would come and ascend the throne in the temple, sit down, begin to rule. He would rule militaristically over the kingdoms of this world. He would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, right? The kingdom above all kingdoms uh, and really conquer the world starting from Jerusalem outward. And so uh, this is right. what's in the minds of some of these disciples. This is what's in the minds of the folks at the top of the hill on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes in and they start shouting, Hosanna, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's starting. The king is coming. Um, and yet we also have that tension of, like N.T. Wright points out in his work on the Ascension, that Jesus, in a sense, was not qualified to be the king of any kingdom because he had not yet conquered the enemy. Right? You don't get to ascend your throne until you conquer the enemy. And so uh, the enemy for Jesus was sin and death itself. The throne he was to ascend was his heavenly throne after he raised from the grave and ascended to that place 40 days later. Um, and so anyway, this is all of this these different concepts of the earthly kingdoms, the heavenly kingdoms, Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world, right? I go there to prepare a place for you, then I'll come back for you. All of these concepts are kind of swirling around like this storm that's ready to brew in the minds of these people as they encounter this parable. And that's exactly what we see with this man of noble birth going to a distant country. He has himself appointed king, and then he returns home, which is where verse 15 picks up. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. We'll pause there because I think in your sermon, you had mentioned something that kind of blew my mind a little bit, something that I wanted to talk more about in this episode. Um, the idea that so often we think of heaven as this binary, that you're either in or you're out. And yet we see passages like this that say, Hey, some will be in charge of 10 cities while others will have five cities or others will have X amount of cities. And it's all based on how we invested our resources here on earth. And so I'm wondering if we could talk more about this on the Going Deeper podcast. Uh, what does it mean that it seems like there's tears in heaven of, <laughs> you know, control of cities? What does that mean? What does it mean that we're in control of cities? And what would you say to the person who sees this and thinks, man, that kind of seems like heaven is still unfair? I think a lot of us have this view of heaven in our minds, like from the cartoons or something, right? where we're we're in the clouds and somehow we've become angels or something, right? Or it's um, we're all kind of fluttering around and we're with God and we're in outer space somewhere. And it's just a bunch of disembodied souls floating, which is not at all uh, the view of the, the kingdom of heaven in the scriptures. In the scriptures, the kingdom of God is here. There's a recreated heaven and earth, uh, and there's this new city, this new Jerusalem, whose boundaries uh, will extend for lengths and lengths and lengths. The streets are paved with gold, right? It's this real tangible place where when 
the king returns. When Jesus returns, we will be resurrected from the dead. Our souls will be reunited with our bodies, and we will exist with him bodily in this place, the recreated heavens and earth forever and ever and ever. And it says in the scriptures, we will rule and reign with him in this place. And so we tend to, even if we have this kind of more grounded view of heaven, uh, like you said, we, we tend to kind of view it more like, I don't know, Jesus is... I don't know what he's doing, but he's there and we're all just kind of milling about like it's some like Star Wars scene where, you know, the camera comes in and we're all just hanging out and I don't know what we're doing. Right. Uh, but really, when you kind of dive deeper into the scriptures of what heaven is, it seems like it's a lot like Earth, but recreated with sin cast out and sinners cast out. And mm. um, seems like we'll be traveling in heaven. We'll be maybe buying and selling in heaven. There's this idea of having vocation and commerce mm. in heaven, traveling in heaven. And there's this idea of rulership, even earthly rulership in heaven, which is really kind of off-putting to us in a sense. Uh, but in Jesus' day, the disciples brought it up a lot. Right? Mm -hmm. They'd be walking down the road and arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wouldn't shut them down and say, hey, hold on. No, there's no greater in the kingdom of heaven. He actually would say, no, you're off you're not going to become great by doing that. Let me tell you how to become great in the kingdom of heaven, right? The, the first will be last and the servant of all, for example, or here, right? If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, invest what I've given you in the kingdom of earth well, and you'll be appointed to rule in the kingdom of heaven. Now we see these other passages talk about rewards in heaven, right? Great is your reward in heaven. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're like, oh yeah, that's just our, heaven is our reward. Our reward is heaven. But other times we look at these passages, it seems like we'll have crowns in heaven or we'll have jewels in our crowns, right? And there's all these different concepts that aren't completely clear. But what is clear is that heaven is not merely a place where all of us are milling about for eternity with nothing to do. Heaven seems like a place a lot like earth. And part of it is it's a kingdom where Jesus seems to have different uh, roles for different people that is somehow related to how we stewarded our life on this planet. And so to the person who says, that's not fair, I, I would push back and I'd say, well, then how come whenever we talk about somebody who is an amazing, godly Christian person, you think of like a Mother Teresa or something, mm -hmm. everyone always follows it up and says, man, I can't imagine what her crown's going to be like in heaven, or <laughs> she's probably going to be ruling in heaven or whatever, all right. these different types of things. Right. Like there's something even within us naturally, where it just feels like these people who embody the kingdom characteristics, who've mar been martyred for their faith who've given all to follow Jesus, somehow they're going to have a role in heaven of leadership in some capacity. And I think it's probably good for our sakes. It doesn't say too much about that, but there's something there. And in this parable, Jesus leans into it and actually says the way to have leadership in heaven is to steward well, whatever portion of grace that you've been given here on planet earth. So I'm wondering if this gives us like permission to think like this and start investing wisely here and now. I don't want to say it's like a selfish motivation, but it's like, yeah, I am investing in something um, that's going to pay off in the future from, you know, for the kingdom. I mean, what is that what we're getting at? Is this like a green light to go and invest in this way? I, I mean, yes, I would, I would push back a little bit and say not to think about it. So, uh, black and whiteness of like, okay, I'm going to live this way now so that I might get this later. But really what I think Jesus is inviting us into is grafting us into this kingdom reality now 
and saying the kingdom in a sense is here, right? We know it's not here yet, but it's here. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus has initiated the kingdom. And if you start living out the kingdom priorities now, it's just going to flow into the life to come. Right. Right. So it's like if you devote your time reaching out to folks and sharing the gospel with them and inviting them into the kingdom community now, you're going to be with them as you travel into the next mm, life right, and right, right. you can't take it with you. You can take them with you, right? <laughs> this is like this idea, use worldly wealth, Jesus says, to make friends for yourself that you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Right? If you start living out these kingdom priorities now, they're going to carry you with you. And so there's this secret of as much as we always joke, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Everything you have is going to burn up. That's true. Jesus says, don't store up yourself treasures on earth where moss and rut destroy and thieves break in and steal. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So he's not merely saying live on this side of eternity so that you'll get a good report card and get a lot on the other side of eternity. Right. He's actually saying live on this side of eternity, doing things that impact the other side of eternity because mm. the transition from this kingdom to the other might be more seamless than you realize. So yes, there's this moment where we're judged and we're given some reward for how we live on earth and things are burned up, things are brought past. But I think a lot of what Jesus is saying is you can start living the kingdom life now here on this earth. And I think that's primarily what he's inviting us into. When you put it like that, it's so compelling. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is where the parable gets really real in verse 20, because, yeah, that's a compelling way to live if you believe that the kingdom continues on seamlessly, as you just said. But then we meet this other servant in verse 20. Let me read it. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? I think this part is fascinating because it is littered with uh, monetary language that can, you know, if you're like me, it can get really confusing really quick. So trying to figure out who's putting in what and who's sowing what and what's putting a money in deposit and all these things like what is a mina and you might be asking that but um underneath it all we see a servant who didn't respond in the way that the master would have liked and he begins by attributing this lack of action to fear yet in your sermon one of the most compelling things was like yeah it, it kind of debunks this idea that it was based on fear. And so what really was behind this servant? What was the motivating factor that made him put this Mina in a piece of cloth and do nothing with it? And the statement you made was incredibly beautiful. Uh, in the notes, here it is. The difference between the good servant and the wicked, lazy servant was in their perspective. The wicked servant viewed investing everything in the kingdom as a life of slavery. The good servants viewed investing everything in the kingdom as a life of true freedom. I know this particular passage caused uh, a lot of wrestling matches when we were um, talking about it. And so I'm wondering, in your preparation for this sermon, how did you come to that quote 
um, that just stood out above the rest. Um, how did you unpack what was behind this servant to bring out to our congregation in the sermon? The, the servant presents this idea that, oh, I didn't do anything with what you gave me because I was scared of you. And I do think there's a bit of, I think he's trying to be honest because I, I can't imagine right this guy getting this thing and being terrified that someday I'm going to have to stand before him. I don't want to mess this up. So I'm just going to put it in my pocket and give it back to him. But there's two things that make me think that there's something more than fear going on here. Right? One is the way he talks about the king, right? You are a harsh man, right? You reap where you do not sow, you sow where you do not reap, right? There's more than fear there. There's some kind of resentment, anger, bitterness in those words. And two, the way the king responds to him, the king comes and almost like calls his bluff and says, listen, if if you truly, if, if fear was your pure emotion, if you were just scared, you would have nothing to give me and you'd mess this thing up. Why did you put the money in your pocket, right? Well, you, you could have taken it to the bank. And when I came back, you would have said, hey, I, I put it in the bank and I invested it. And so here's yours plus some interest. You could have done a little bit. You did literally nothing. <laughs> and so if you were just scared of me, there would be a better option than this. There's something more going on than merely your fear. And so I yeah did have to wrestle with this where Jesus had some persona in mind when he wrote this parable and spoke this parable. So one of the things I do as I study the scriptures is kind of run scenarios through the parable, be like, okay, was it this? Was it this? Was it this? And every once in a while, one pops in that makes sense. <laughs> and so the one that pops popped in, made sense to me was, was this, was that this man who probably had some fear, he also had this view of God, this resentment that comes out in his words. And I'm asking myself, what was he so resentful about? And this is what he says. He says, you you reap where you do not sow, and you sow where you do not reap. This idea that you're trying to take what isn't yours. You're trying to take crops that you didn't plant. And so I'm thinking, well, who did plant the crops? Who did the work of the soil? I'm thinking the servant would have, right? He's thinking, you gave me this seed of money. You expect me to spend my whole life planting it on the ground in a sense, right? Watering the seed, doing the work. And then you're going to come and take all the returns for yourself, right. right? So this is this idea of this servant is thinking, okay, so this is the great deal the master gave me. He's going to go about his business. I'm going to work hard while he's gone. And then he's going to come back and take everything I worked for. And I imagine him thinking this life of slaving for the master while he was gone just to hand everything over to him. Mm -hmm. The words that popped into my mind where I got the slavery concept was the same phrase uh, that the older brother said in the prodigal son parable, which I think was just a couple chapters before, right? Mm -hmm. He said, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never asked for anything. And then this son of yours comes home, squanders everything, and you you kill the fattened calf for him. Mm And what we see in that parable, which in a sense is similar undertones to this parable, is a person who doesn't get it because they think that the the master is requiring them to live a life of slavery as compared to these other folks who are looking at this mina as a gift and thinking, wait, I can invest this in the king's business. And when he returns, he'll be pleased with what I've done. And who knows what will happen, right? And on the other side, they get 10 cities, five cities. The great is their reward in heaven. And they see this opportunity in front of them from a gracious master who ends up coming through with what they may have hoped would happen versus a man who thinks that God wants to enslave them to his purposes. And he ends up being 
treated like a slave in a sense, everything stripped from him and given to those people who do get it. Yeah. It seems like a war of perspectives. I think Mm -hmm. that word stands out perspective because on one side you can take the perspective that this was my hard work, my money. I earned all that I put my hand to. And then, like you said, giving it away at the very end of everything, or you could take the perspective like, yes, I put in some time, but like ultimately everything is the king's. And I wonder if it goes back to the top of like, do we believe that the king actually took his throne? Like, do we believe that the king actually rules and, you know, is the ruler overall and owns all of these things? And uh, one of the phrases we used was like, that we're literally playing with house money at this point, house money. Well, and even more than that, do we really believe that the economy of the kingdom is everlasting and imperishable, right? Because it's like, if I, if I brought it to you and said, Hey, here's an option for how you're going to live your life. You either play this game where you go to work 40 hours a week, you take home a paycheck, you spend it on trucks and stuff, and then you die and it all burns. Or you take the money you're earning at work, you invest it in some kingdom priorities. And then on the other side of eternity, you get to see the return on all this thing in a never ending way. You're always going to take the second deal. You're always going to say, I'm not going to like the life of slavery is a life of working for stuff that burns. Mm. But this, this servant saw a life of slavery as a life of investing in the master's business. So I really think if, if your vision ends with your stuff and your happiness and your legacy here on earth, that's a life of slavery. Like a real mm-hmm. life of freedom is a life that the door opens on the other side and there's everlasting returns on the investments you've made with your time, your money, uh, and your passions here on the short time you lived in planet earth. Yeah. It seems like that war of where your eyes are going to be fixed comes to a, you know, a clash, I guess, in this last servant and the result of taking that, you know, slavery route where you're working for things that are going to burn comes in verse 24 and the, then he said to those standing by, take his, the lazy servant, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. You know, I think we've already answered this, but I have to throw in. The skeptics question? The skeptics question. I can't wait. (laughs) Because this is the second time where things seem to get unfair and the crowd recognizes it. So taking away the the mina of this one person who didn't respond in this particular way and giving it to the guy that has 10 already. Um, Man, it already feels like heaven has this tier system, which we talked about. And now, like, if we don't follow God's instructions in the way they are, the rich seem to get richer and the poor seem to get poorer. And finally, the only instruction of the king in this text is put it to work. So like, he's given it and it's like, all right, put it to work. And then he expects us to come out and like understand what that means. And so coming from the skeptics angle to this passage... You know, if God was worried this much about our investments, you'd have figured that he would have given us way more instructions on what to do. So it just all seems unfair. It all seems like, you know, throwing up your hands. It all seems like this guy, you know, gave me something that, you know, was going to tempt me and kind of like a bait and switch sort of thing. 
what do you say to these accusations that, yeah, it does seem unfair. It does seem like God is pretty silent on what he wants from us. Just basically put it to work. What do you say to these accusations? I think part of what we need to see is these, these are servants in this parable and they don't own any of this stuff, right? This Mina that God takes away from this guy is not his Mina. It was God's Mina, right? I love what you just said, right? We're playing with house money. And so, so picture this idea, these money throws us off because we, once we see it, we want to grab it, right? We're like the Lord <laughs> of the Rings or whatever, like Gollum trying to get the ring. Uh, but imagine these are poker chips, right? This is, it's a casino analogy, house money. And God is this casino owner who's like, listen, like we got a game night going on. This is not gambling. You're just going to play. Here's a bunch of chips. It's free, right? So he gives a, a stack of chips to each of these 10 people like, go have fun, man. Right? So this guy comes back. Uh, hey, man, I took these uh, thousand poker chips. I made you a thousand more. He's like, great job. You get to own 10 casinos, right? Uh, right? <laughs> the next guy, like, I made 5,000 more. Great, man. Here's five casinos. There's one guy's like holding the poker chip that God gave him. And he's like, I didn't want to play because I knew you just wanted to take it. And, and, and God's like, this is a game night, man. Like, I wanted to go have fun. And like, you're, great would have been your reward if you want to play. Give me back my poker chips and I'm going to give them to the guy who's good at this game and I'm going to let him invest this, right? Mm. So I think part of the shift that needs to happen in our own minds with money is that money is not something that any of us own. Mm. All of it belongs to God. And in a sense, if we can have the same emotional connection with money as we would with a game and poker chips, we might see some better freedom to say, you know what? Like, in a sense, right? This is a game. This is, mm. this is, these are goods that God has given me to invest in his kingdom purposes. And when you win at the game of life, it's not like you get to keep the poker chips. They're just poker chips, right? I heard somebody say gold is pavement in heaven, right? Who cares? It's, <laughs> it's, it's nothing. The thing that matters is what God will give you on judgment day. First of all, welcome into the kingdom, good and faithful servant. And second, here's your reward, right? Here is what mm. uh, the gift that I'm giving you uh, to celebrate the faithfulness that you've shown in playing this game called life. And yeah, if you don't want to play, fine, give me my chip back. And <laughs> in this economic example, who's God most likely to give his chip to? The guy who's really good at the game, right? Mm. Because he makes more money for the master and the master is likely to give him rewards, right? So picture sales and bonuses and cruises. Don't just picture this as their money, right? <laughs> it's interesting that you say the reward is uh, not necessarily the poker chips that you take away with you, but it's the salvation that you experience. It's the 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 judgment at that final day of like, you were a good, faithful servant, which leads to verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. <laughs> yeah, that was a reaction we had when we were reading it together. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have listed on my computer in front of me, usually the questions. And this is the question that I wrote down. Uh, what? <laughs> Why does Jesus end the story? with this kill them in front of me i think two reasons uh this i don't know why he did this but my guess would be two reasons number one this parable represents real people right and so uh he's about to go to jerusalem where he'll be celebrated for a moment and then handed over and put to death by these citizen characters these people who are these mobs that are yelling crucify him crucify him this delegation he talks about that tries to follow jesus into the city and say he should not be the king 
And then these people who are haters of Jesus are going to persecute and put to death many of the men that Jesus is speaking to in that circle right there. They'll be hated. They'll be flogged. They'll be put to death. They'll be stoned, crucified upside down. And I, and I think that as they walk through their ministry life on the other side of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, I, I think part of this parable is going to be sticking to them as they think, okay, right? there is a judgment day coming and I'm on the right side of human history with this thing, right? I think there's a, a somberness he's bringing to it, right? Especially as they're going to watch their king be murdered by these people. Where is the justice? Where is the judgment of God? I think the second thing he's trying to do with this is help people see how much dramatically better it is for the servant that squandered the mina versus the citizens of the kingdom who had hatred towards the king. Hmm. Right? There, there's not like a spectrum between like, you know, it, it's okay to be a citizen. It, it's a little better to be a one Mina guy. And it's amazing to be a 10 Mina guy. It's like, there are two categories of people. There are people who enter the kingdom of heaven and, and they step into glory forever. And there are people who are slaughtered and experience eternal conscious torment in hell. Right? Those are the two major categories we see in this text. And so what we're talking about with the 10 Mina, 5 Mina, 1 Mina characters, where we fixate our energy, this is a very small spectrum on the other side of these are all people entering the kingdom of God. And so there's this, there's this verse that's uh, in the New Testament epistles that says some will enter in the kingdom of, of heaven through fire. <laughs> this idea like you barely made it, you smell like smoke, maybe, you know, right? <laughs> like you don't have much to show for it, but you're here, right? And right. so as much as we feel bad for this one Mina guy, it's like, dude, he made it, right? He, hmm. he didn't make it and you will not make it into the kingdom of heaven because of what you do with God's money. Right. Or you will make it into the kingdom of heaven because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, because of your love for the king, and more than that, for his love towards you, his sacrifice on the cross for you and your affiliation with him as one of his servants. Right. So if we're out there, you're out there today, you're one of God's servants, and you're thinking, man, I, I've kind of squandered the life I've been living. I think part of the reason that, that Jesus ends the parable this way is like, hey, don't if you feel like you've squandered what God has entrusted to you and you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, do not forget that your eternal reward is infinity times better mm. than the alternative, mm -hmm. which is to be an enemy of the king who ends up on the wrong side of history and suffering in hell forever. And so I do think he brings some sobriety and even some comfort to the one mean of people among us who are saying, man, uh, I messed up my life. It's like, hey, you know what? At the same time, come and enter your eternal reward that Jesus has purchased for you. You didn't play the game of life great, but you know what? You made one good decision and you entered into a relationship with Jesus and uh, you can spend the rest of eternity exploring what it means to be in followership with him. Yeah, it's very freeing, you know, talking about this war perspectives, just ending on that perspective like, okay, you might be tempted to just degrade this one Mina person and it's like, oh man, he's actually going to be in the kingdom of God and how much better that is than the enemies of the king. So uh, that's such a helpful reminder to continue to learn how to steward our resources well. And one of the ways we've been promoting is this 90-day challenge that um, I hope a lot of you have signed up for. If not, it's threecrosses.church slash generosity. That's threecrosses.church slash generosity. Uh, join us in this 90 day challenge to uh, learn how to take our poker chips of life and uh, 
Put it on red. I don't know. Yeah, th- throw in one chip, ten chips, or go all in. Go Take all one in. One of the challenges. Yeah, go for it. Uh, playing with house money. We're all trying to go all in for right. uh, for Jesus Christ. So, man, what a two week mini series. Uh, it's been great talking about money. And so, Pastor Danny, until next time, we got a fun summer series around the corner. So, uh, yeah. look forward to that. And uh, until next time, we'll see you. See you around.